I was driving around this week, I noticed that every church had some sort of resurrection theme on its billboard. So I thought, are they copying me? And I thought, well, maybe I'm copying them. But either way, we are not going to let you down. Now, if you do come to church and all you ever hear is a resurrection message or a message of Jesus' birth, you should probably come more than twice a year. Now, I don't know if you've ever read through all four gospel accounts, but if you have, in one sitting, read all the resurrection accounts and just sat down and kind of went and found them in each gospel and read them through, this is what you would discover. There's a lot of differences. As a matter of fact, there are so many differences that it can be really confusing and it can even make you wonder, is this the same same resurrection? Surely Jesus didn't rise more than once. And because of this, some have proposed that the resurrection isn't true. Or that the gospel writers aren't true. Or they were confused. Or it's just a big myth. And that the church has believed a lie and different people at different times have, you know, promoted the myth of the resurrection and, and Christians just want to believe it so bad they just do it against all sound reason. And those who love to hate God have always been champions of attacking the resurrection because on the resurrection all of Christianity rises or falls. It's not one of those minor little, you know, side doctrines that you don't really need to believe this to be a Christian. Oh yes you do. It is one of the pillars of the faith when it comes to things that you must believe. And if you can prove the resurrection is wrong, then Christianity is wrong. Christ didn't rise from the dead. He didn't conquer death. He didn't make atonement for sins. He's not coming back in judgment. And we're all just going to die and perish. That's it. If he didn't rise from the dead. And Satan knows this. And that is why he has always proposed the lie That the resurrection isn't true. It's invariably, every year, people bring me articles and newspaper clippings and magazine, you know, sections, all explaining how the resurrection isn't true. You don't have to bring me anymore. Um, I've seen them, you know. I I throw them away every year. Thank you, yes, I know that's out there. And... Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, as he discusses this, it was even right after Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to all those people, and it was unmistakable, still people were doubting it. And Paul said this, listen, if the resurrection isn't true, the preaching of the gospel is in vain, faith is in vain, those who preach the gospel are liars, you are still in your sins. Those who have died trusting in Christ have died and perished forever. And above all people on the earth, Christians are of all of them most to be pitied because we are so deluded and ignorant into thinking that Jesus rose from the dead if in fact he did not rise. Well, the question is, how do we account for the differences in the resurrection? When you start looking at them all and you see, well, this one says this and that one says that. And if you were to read, you know, secular people, those who want to try and disprove the Bible, they make it sound like, you know, there's been convocations of the greatest Bible scholars in the world who have gathered together to try to figure out this unsolvable mystery. And now they're just stumped and they have to admit the resurrection didn't happen. But go ahead and believe the myth. 
That's how they make it sound. It's really simple. Three things. First, the reason there are four Gospels instead of just one is God wanted to emphasize four different themes in the life of Christ. That's all. And it was never the intention of any of the Gospel writers to write down a comprehensive account of the resurrection. Though they all include it, they only include part of what happened. And purposely so. And so is erroneous to say, well, because, you know, they don't seem to include all the information, therefore the Bible's wrong. Secondly, if one gospel writer includes certain information and another gospel writer leaves that information out, that doesn't mean the Bible contradicts itself. You know, if I call up my brother and say, hey, guess who came to church? And he says, who? And I tell him about three people that he knows. He lives in Washington. Now, does that mean only those three people came to church? Well, of course not. Well, that's all you said. Well, so here you are. Third and finally, the gospel writers don't tell us everything we want to know. They tell us everything God wants us to know. And while the gospels give us all accurate information about the resurrection and many other details about Christ's life, you need to remember that it was never their intent to try and give us a precise chronological account of every single detail that happened to our curiosity to meet all the questions that we might have about the resurrection. God tells us what we need to know, and each gospel writer tells us what we need to know that serves the purpose of the theme in the life of Christ. Now this morning, we're going to look at Luke 24, 1 through 12. And before we do that, I thought I would give two introductions to the text. One kind of an emotional introduction. I mean, I'm not going to cry, so don't worry. And then kind of a chronological introduction, and you'll see what I mean. In order to understand our text, and what is interesting is, once I give you these, that our text is going to be clear. This is kind of, uh, I've never done this before. This is kind of the interpretation of our text before we get to it. And what we're going to do is, I want you to just go back in time with me to that first century when Jesus was about to be crucified. Now, think about what it was like to live back then. You are one of Jesus' followers. And ever since Jesus has been roaming around the country, for three years you have left your family. Maybe your family has rejected you and said, listen, if you follow this Jesus guy, it's over. You are cut off. We are no longer going to even consider you as our family member. And so you've left your family. You've left your business. You... You've lost any reputation you have among the religious leaders of Israel because now you're following that guy who says that the religious leaders of Israel are hypocrites. And so you've really gambled all to follow Jesus, but it's been great. Because as you followed him, you have heard teaching like you have never heard before. Jesus doesn't quote rabbi this and rabbi that. He just says what's true. He never quotes anybody. He just quotes himself. He just says it. And he teaches like one having authority. And you listen to that. 
And you just think, man, this is incredible. This is clear. This is understandable. This is amazing. As he opens up the the true meaning of God's word that has been covered up by the religious leaders of the day. And not only that, you see him heal people. You see lines of people. And he's kind of like the roaming hospital. He just goes through towns and just anybody who's sick, he just heals everybody. Crippled people, blind people, lepers. He even raises from people from the dead. You've seen all of it and you have become totally convinced that this man, Jesus, is the Messiah, the coming king of Israel, that he's going to overthrow Rome, he's going to establish his kingdom on earth, and you're going to be on the end because you're following him, and you're trusting in him, and everything's wonderful. You've seen his power, you've heard his teaching, and you just can't wait. You're wondering what's taking him so long. He's kind of taunting us. It's going to be so great when he takes that power he used to stop the sea and he's going to just wipe out Rome. And so there's a sense of expectation. And there are a lot of people that you run into who know about John the Baptist, who were baptized by John, and some may have even known Zacharias and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's parents, and know how the angel appeared to him, and how he lost his voice, and all the miraculous deeds concerning John the Baptist. Or maybe they know Mary, or have heard about Mary, and how Mary was a virgin, and how the shepherds came and saw her baby and magi, these kingmakers from the east, came all the way over to worship Jesus as a king. And you you know people. Maybe you're one of them. And you have left all to follow Jesus. You're convinced he's the Messiah. And what's really great is five days before Jesus' crucifixion, this is Monday of the week, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a colt and the people are just in mass and they've got palm branches and they're laying them down and they're saying, blessed is he, you know, who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And they're all chatting and you're just thinking to yourself, it's happening. It is happening. Jesus is going to be king. Everybody's going to receive him. Uh, Rome's going to be overthrown. Israel will be exalted among all the nations of the earth, just like the prophets had said. And oh man, it's getting good. But little do you know that at that very time, a plot is being hatched by the religious leaders who have found a mole among the apostles, and that is Judas. And Judas has been a follower for Christ, but he hasn't followed Christ because he loved him, because he needed a savior, because he wanted power, he wanted prestige, he wanted money. And this was a chance to get ahead. Maybe get in the good with the religious establishment. Make some money. And so certain hard-hearted religious leaders among the Jews who are threatened by Jesus because Jesus exposed their hypocrisy said they were unbelieving, said that they made disciples that were ten times more the children of hell than themselves, said that they were sinners, and that some prostitutes and tax collectors would get in the kingdom of heaven before them. Those people hate Jesus so much that they have now agreed with you that you to pay you 30 pieces of silver... And so Judas says, okay, 
And Judas then betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. It was prophesied in Zechariah 11, verses 11 and 12. The Lord God, Yahweh, says, this is the price at which they sold me. 30 pieces of silver. And so if you're among one of the followers of Jesus, you see something very strange happened that on the Passover meal, Judas all of a sudden leaves and you're thinking to yourself, oh, he has to go get some, you know, supplies or something. I don't know why he's leaving, but he, he betrays Jesus and it ignites the fuse of a series of events that are the most traumatizing thing in your entire life. Jesus was taken captive while he's praying in the garden. And to your horror, he is falsely accused. He is tried. False witnesses come forward and they lie about him. Then they beat him and they spit upon him and they slap him and they torture him and they ridicule him. And you know what? The apostles who seem big and tough, who said, Lord, we will never leave you. We will die before we leave you. They all run away. Even big bad Peter denies him three times and hides. And ironically, the only followers who are left are a bunch of scared women. They're kind of watching from a distance. And imagine their horror and grief. Imagine if you were among them seeing this person that you were totally convinced in was the Messiah. You saw his power, you saw what he was able to do, and now he's doing nothing. They're just abusing him and heaping scorn upon him. And you're thinking to yourself, you know, I've left everything to follow Jesus. Has this all been for nothing? Has this all been for nothing? And maybe you feel that the only possible consequence of this is that Jesus couldn't be the Messiah. He couldn't be the Savior and Redeemer and King of Israel. Look at him. And maybe you feel despair because you have left everything to follow Jesus. You've walked away from your family and your business and you've become a traitor in the eyes of the religious leaders. And for what? You see Jesus get crucified and die. And there you stand looking at him and you're thinking, I have given up all for what? A dead man? A dead man? And you can imagine the trauma of this. And you keep thinking to yourself, he said he would come in glory. He must have lied. He said he would come back and establish his kingdom. He must have lied. There he is. He's on the cross. He's dead. And you're wondering, has this entire three years been a joke? Has it been a huge foolish mistake? Have I just been swept away by another false teacher? And then you begin to fear. Because you remember that Jesus said, you'll be hated on by all on account of me. And you're thinking, you know, they killed Jesus. Maybe they're going to kill me. Maybe they're going to hunt me down. Maybe they're going to crucify me. And the Sabbath is coming and you don't know what to do. You're scared. And so you think, okay, I'm going to go home and I'm just going to pray. And I don't know what to do. And you're just, you're overcome with grief and you're weeping and you go home. Now, keeping these things in mind, the emotional state 
of all the people mentioned in the story of the resurrection, let me just give you a chronological account of what could have happened. I say could because there's a lot of different ways you can establish the the facts in such a way that they all agree and that's not hard to do. The question is whether the account I'm giving you is accurate. I'm sure it's probably not perfectly accurate, but it does include all the facts and this is one possible way it could have worked out. And as I go through here, you will get all the information from all four Gospels. And then when we get to Luke, you'll see what Luke left out. And I think the meaning will become quite clear. So after Jesus is tortured and crucified, he yields up his spirit to the Father, dies, and then a soldier who is there to break the legs of the prisoners because, or the the criminals, because uh, the Sabbath is approaching... Sees Jesus is dead, wants to make sure, runs a spear in his side. And sure enough, he's dead. Seeing he was dead, two of his secret followers, one a wealthy, influential member of the Jewish council, the very Jewish council that paid Judas to betray Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, that man, along with another Jewish leader, a leader of the Pharisees who also conspired against Jesus, go to Pilate, ask for the body of Jesus, and are granted permission as soon as Pilate discovers that, yes, he is in fact dead. Joseph and Nicodemus then go to the site of the crucifixion. The Sabbath is approaching. Maybe it's only an hour or two away. It's late in the afternoon. Nicodemus brings with him about 75 pounds of burial spices and other materials to embalm the body of Jesus. They take his body down and carry it to a nearby garden where Joseph of Arimathea just happens to have his own personal tomb carved out of solid rock that no one has ever laid in. He says, let's put him in my tomb. So they do. They make the preparations. They get a paste out of this, make a paste out of these spices, put it on this cloth and just wrap him and basically make a mummy out of him. While they're doing this, several of the women, maybe some of the men are sitting outside the tomb looking in. Among them are Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph. And they're all just looking in and they're seeing all this transpire and grieving because they can't believe Jesus is dead. The Sabbath is about to begin and having finished their initial preparations, they all leave to go home. They're all going to go home. And you can imagine how sad they were. They have suffered and suffered and suffered watching Jesus suffer since Thursday. They have suffered. They're just in pain. They're in misery and they don't know what to do. But the reason they made this request is that they remember that Jesus said he would rise again from the dead after three days. And the Jewish leaders who didn't believe Jesus at all, at least remembered he would rise from the dead according to his own words. And they're scared. And so they say, okay, let's just go to Pilate and say, could you, we have an unusual request. Could you get a guard and get the guard and have them guard the body? You know, most bodies don't get up and get away. 
But their reasoning was, is we are fearful that because Jesus said he would rise again after three days, the disciples are going to sneak in at nighttime, take the body and go, he's risen from the dead and the deception will be greater than when he was on earth. So Pilate says, okay, you can have a guard. And so they take a guard and they go to the tomb. And they take a huge stone and roll it in front of the tomb. And they put the seal of Rome, the seal of Rome on that stone, which says, which means this, if you touch this stone, you deal with the authority of Rome. And then they take a whole Roman guard to guard the dead body. For three days, just to make sure that none of this rising from the dead nonsense comes to pass. Well, Sunday finally comes, Sunday morning, and there is women, there are women who are around Jerusalem. The, the, the scripture says there were many of them, so we don't know what that means, whether that means, you know, 10 or 50. It's hard to say, or more than that even, it's hard to say. But anyways, these women seem to have agreed to, let's, let's meet at the tomb at first light. And so they come probably from different locations, and they're all gravitating towards the tomb. They're moving towards the tomb, walking from wherever they live in the nearby area. They left when it was dark, and as they get there, it's just starting to get light. The sun is just shining out. Among them are Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome and others, not mentioned specifically by name. And they are also bringing spices to finish up the burial preparations. And while the women are en route though, going from their homes to the tomb site, something happens at the tomb. There's this huge earthquake. And the stone is rolled away and an angel sits on it and is radiant in appearance. And when the soldiers see the angel and feel the earthquake, they are so scared, they faint. They faint, all these men. Ah, Over they go. And when the soldiers come to, they look around, the angel's gone. They say, let's get out of here. And so they all go into the city to talk to the chief priests and tell them what happened. And so the soldiers just have left and all of a sudden the women start arriving at the tomb. And the soldiers though have gone to the chief priests and they've said, hey, you aren't going to believe what happened. And they tell them and they say, okay, this is what we want you to do. We want you to tell everybody this story. All agree to tell them this story that his disciples snuck in at nighttime when you guys were standing guard on pain of death rolled the stone away when you weren't watching, snuck in the tomb, unwrapped Jesus' body, took the body, and then put the wrappings back over the air so it looked like a body, (laughs) and snuck him away. And we'll take care of Pilate. Because see, at that time, if you were a guard and you didn't follow orders, or you failed to do what you were told to do, they would kill you. So they pay him some money and say, we'll take care of your superior officers. Everything will be okay. And so the soldiers leave. The women on the, are almost at the tomb site at this time. And they're talking to themselves saying, hey, uh, who's going to roll the stone away? I mean, you know, we're, there's quite a few of us here, but we're still women. Um, who's going to move the stone? 
But when they get there, the stone's already moved out of the way. Praise God. And so the women enter the tomb, and to their surprise, they see Jesus' burial cloths there, but no Jesus in the cloth. They have wrapped him up like a mummy right after he died, and now it's just the cloth wrapped up, but there's no body in there. And they were perplexed, and understandably so. Because how do you get the body out of the wrappings without disturbing the wrappings? Then suddenly two angels appear and the women are terrified. They fall down with their faces to the ground. The angels say, do not be afraid, which of course is the standard angel greeting. (laughs) Because when you meet an angel, it's scary. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. They also exhort the women saying, remember how Jesus spoke to you while in Galilee saying the son of man must be delivered in the hands of sinful man, be crucified and the third day rise again. All these women had heard Jesus teach about this. He had told them all his followers about this and even some who didn't believe him about this. But it seemed to be too amazing. It was too weird. It was too supernatural. They, you know, they had never had conversations with angels. They didn't know what to All they knew is they saw Jesus die. They were tired. They've probably been up for, you know, two and a half days straight, mourning, weeping, worrying, praying, fretting, not knowing what to do. Jesus has been killed and now his body's gone. And so the angels say, go back, tell him that he has risen and remind him what he said, that he was going to meet him in Galilee. But the women, for some reason, because of fear, because of uncertainty, because they didn't know if the disciples would laugh at them because the two angels they saw, supposedly. So they go back and they all agree, Let, let's not tell everybody about oh, the, 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 the shining guys. And so Mary Magdalene speaks up, gets there a little bit first, speaks up for the rest, and this is all she tells them the first time. They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And as soon as Peter and John hear this, they just bolt for the tomb, leaving Mary Magdalene with this other group of women where Peter and John were staying. John ran up ahead, arrived at the tomb first. Peter then came shortly after. John had stopped at the mouth and didn't enter. Peter shot in. John came in behind him. And they saw nothing but the burial materials left behind. No body in them. As if someone had just sucked the body out without touching the wrappings and the spices. But when John saw this, God's word says, he believed. When John saw this, I mean, John must have been pretty smart. You cannot get a body out of those wrappings unless it was resurrected or something. And so he believed. And then Peter and John departed for home. Mary Magdalene, on the other hand, is with the other women. And she finally says, I'm going back to the tomb. And she's grieving. She's, she's smitten with fear. The other women either leave to go home or in a group or, or hang around there. We don't know for certain. Shortly afterwards, though, Mary Magdalene departed. Peter and John have are heading back home. And Jesus then appears to the other group of women, minus Mary Magdalene. 
He appears to them and he says, do not be afraid. They fall down and they start clinging to his feet. And he says, go take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. And there they shall see me. So they headed back to tell the disciples what had happened. Meanwhile, Mary Magdalene finally arrives at the tomb for the second time. She is just a emotional wreck. Not having any sleep, not knowing what had happened, not knowing what to make of the first encounter with the angels. And there she sees two angels, again, clothed in white, one at each end of where Jesus' body had lain in the tomb. And the angels say to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she replied, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. And after saying this, she turned and there stood Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Maybe she had her head down, maybe her eyes were so full of tears she couldn't recognize who he was or just didn't look at him directly. I don't know, but the text says she supposed he was the gardener. And Jesus spoke saying, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? To which she replied, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus then called her by name and said, Mary. It was then that Mary looked directly at Jesus and seeing it was him cried out, teacher. And she just latched onto him and clung to him. And in her mind, listen, I lost you once. I am never letting go of you again. And then Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to the Father and to your Father and to my God and to your God. So Mary Magdalene departed a second time from the tomb and reported all these things to the disciples saying, I have seen the Lord and told him everything. All right. That will give you a little synopsis of everything. Now let's look at our text in Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. Follow along as I read. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, these are the women, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered to the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again? And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven And to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and also other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them, that is the apostles, as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stopping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Now, you can see from the reading of Luke that not all the details are there. But Luke isn't trying to give us all the details. But what we learn from Luke's account here, 
are that there are two different ways to respond to the resurrection. And depending on how you respond to these resurrection will determine your eternal destiny, your soul, heaven and hell, judgment or forgiveness. And so let's look. The first is, do not be unbelieving. As you read Luke's account, the first major point that Luke emphasizes is the fact that his closest followers were unbelieving. They were unbelieving. And this in itself is unbelievable. Like many today, they could not bring themselves to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. And this is amazing in light of the fact of how many times Jesus told them. Jesus had predicted numerous times that he was going to rise from the dead. And as a matter of fact, when you go through the Gospels, a lot of occasions are recorded, but this is just a sampling. At first, he told them in a very cryptic way, even to the leaders of Israel. And one of the ironies of this is, is, is when you read the account here, his closest followers don't believe he's risen from the dead and don't remember what he said, but his enemies do, and then they get the guard posted. But way back early in John chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, the Jews asked for a sign from Jesus, and Jesus said to them, destroy this temple, and three days I will raise it up. And they looked at Herod's temple and said, it took 46 years to build that. You're going to knock it down and rebuild it in three days? John says they didn't understand that he was talking about his body. And if you remember the crucifixion account, they actually used this argument against him. He's trying to destroy our temple. Again, in Matthew 12, verses 38 through 40, the scribes and Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask for a sign. The Jews always wanted to see a sign. Can you do another miracle? We kind of like the miracles. And Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three nights and uh, three days and nights in the belly of the sea monster, so the Son of Man will be three days and nights in the heart of this earth. This is also said in Matthew sixteen four, right after this. Almost identical thing. He references Jonah. Jesus also spoke to the disciples plainly about his impending death and resurrection. In Matthew 16, 21, we read, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must, one, go to Jerusalem, two, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests, uh, three, be killed, and four, rise again on the third day. That's clear. And if you remember, right after this, Peter took Jesus' side and rebuked him and said, You are not dying. And Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. In Matthew 17, right after that, in verses 22 and 23, we read, And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of evil men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. In Mark 9.32, it gives us a little comment. It's a parallel account. It says, But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. All they knew is, listen, Jesus is the guy. He fulfills the prophecies. He's got a lot of power. And he can't die because he's the one. We know he's the one. He cannot die. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19, Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside by themselves on the way. And this is what he said to them. Now, see if this is clear enough. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, 
And the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. And will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. That's about as clear as you can get. You know what their problem is? They would not believe. They just would not believe. And this is one of the ways you can respond to Jesus' resurrection. Refuse to believe it. And you can understand their reasoning. You know, they have never ever followed anybody or heard of anybody who followed anybody who died and then came back. You know, there's, there's not like a precedent here. And they're thinking to themselves, how can he be the savior, the Messiah, the king, the world ruler, and be dead? Whatever Jesus meant to say, surely it must have been symbolic. It must have been metaphorical of something else, some sort of internal grief or something. But he can't die. Yes, this is very interesting that he told the disciples in straightforward language he was going to die and none of them believed him. And then all the unbelieving leaders said, hey, let's get a guard because he said he was going to rise from the dead. You see, what Jesus' followers and virtually all the Jews of that time didn't understand is that when the Messiah showed up, he would show up the first time in humility as a babe, as a carpenter of poor parents, as a servant of all, to live a perfect life, to offer himself up as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Jesus says, no man takes my life from me. I have the authority to lay it down. I have authority to raise it up. This authority I received from the Father. He gave himself. Willingly, voluntarily. He could have commanded legions of angels. They would have done whatever he asked. But he gave himself for unworthy sinners, for you and for me. But the death of Messiah in the mind of a Jew was not an option. It did not compute. They couldn't bring themselves to understand that part. And even the women who traveled with Jesus and didn't believe... They acted on their unbelief. It's one thing to be unbelieving and then act it out. The women brought spices to the tomb. Why? If Jesus is not there, why bring spices to put on him? His body. See, they believed his body was still going to be there. In Luke chapter 24, verses 2 and 3, it tells us that when the women didn't find the body, they were perplexed. Well... They wouldn't have been perplexed if they had believed that Jesus rose from the dead. But they were. Why? Because they didn't believe. And the angel's rebuke, if you look in verses 5 through 7, shows that they were in a state of unbelief. The men said to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? Implied answer, that is stupid. And then they rebuke them. He is not here, but he has risen. And then they appealed to their remember memories. Don't you remember what he told us when he was with us? Certainly they had known the truth. The angel's statement makes this perfectly clear. So what was the problem? Unbelief. 
unbelief. We see the same response in the disciples. Look at verse 11. The women come back and we don't know in the chronological sequence whence this phrase refers to. But anyways, when the disciples finally found out what had happened, their response was, verse 11, but these words appeared to them to be as nonsense and they would not believe them. I mean, even as 12 disciples, the apostles, nope, even them, we aren't believing That is incredible. You know, Jesus told them over and over again, you know, maybe 20, maybe 30 times. Who knows? I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me. I'm going to be crucified. Rise again the third day. La, la, la. We are not going to hear that one. And so they were not only unbelieving, but they were acting on their unbelief. Why? Run to the tomb to see a body that isn't there. Why grieve if Jesus is glorified and now in heaven? And the main sin that runs through this entire text is the sin of unbelief. And it is the mother of all sins. Unbelief is the mother of all sins. You know, every sin is an act of unbelief. Every sin is when you say to yourself, you know what? God doesn't know what's best for me. His word isn't true. His word won't bring me happiness. So I'm going to do what I want to do because you know what? This will fulfill me. This will make me happy in the end. Therefore, I am going to refuse to believe God and believe myself instead. I mean, do you ever hit your finger with a hammer on purpose? Do you ever put your hand in the fire on purpose? Maybe go outside and throw some sand in your eyes. Rub it in on purpose. Why? Because you believe that would be painful. You are convinced it would be painful and you're not going to try it. But you know what? If you thought it was good, you'd do it. If you thought it would bring a pleasure, good. If you thought in the long run, you thought, hey, you know, sand in the eyes is a good thing. Hmm. Well, God says, all sin hurts. Yet we choose to sin, and we're really saying, I don't believe God. I don't believe God's telling me the truth, that he knows what's best. And so every sin is just a a blatant act of unbelief. And even true believers have to constantly battle against unbelief because we're all sinners. All unbelief is sin and should be avoided. But the worst kind of unbelief is damning unbelief. You know what? Any sin can send you to hell. Anyone. I don't care how small. James says if you commit one sin, break one law, you break them all. Why is that? Because all of the commands in the Bible are all expressions of love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And whenever you choose not to believe God and commit any sin, you're violating the one command, Jesus said, that all the commands hang on. And so you break one command, you've broken them all because you know what? You've broken the great command. You have failed to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And this is your ticket to hell. But think of all the misery, all the grief, all the fretting, all the anxiety that could have been avoided if Jesus' followers had believed what Jesus said. Oh, it would have been very grievous to see Jesus falsely accused, tortured, and die. But you know, once he's dead, his suffering has ended. And you would go home that night saying, hey, just 
Don't bother preparing the body. It's coming up. We got three days. It's, it's, it's out of here. And you know, all day that Sabbath, you could be sitting around saying, you know what? It's going to be so good to see him again. It's going to be so great. I wonder what he's going to look like. I wonder if we're going to be able to see the, the injuries or how that works. What does a glorified body look like anyways? And you could just be anticipating that. Oh, you know, since Sabbath ends on Saturday night, do you think we should just go to the tomb and wait till he resurrects? Do you think we could watch it? See, that's what it would be like. They would have had this anticipation, this joy that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. Just like he said, better than new. And Peter and would have stepped forward, maybe some of the others, and told Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, listen, don't go to all that hassle trying to get his body prepared because, listen, he's coming up. I'm certain there are some of you, some of you here this morning that don't believe. You just don't believe. Now, you may think to yourself, well, hey, listen, I'm here, aren't I? I believe in Jesus. That's why I come to celebrate the resurrection. Well, you know what? There's two different kinds of belief that the scriptures teach about. There is Judas belief, demon belief. That is when you intellectually agree with facts. That is when you say, I am going to give verbal assent to something being true. Like when you go to your, the dentist, the dentist says, have you been flossing? Now, if I were to say to you, do you believe flossing is good for your gums and teeth? You might tell me, yes. The question is, do you floss? See, there's one thing to just agree that something is good. There's another thing to trust and live what you say you believe. What really comes down to is you live what you believe. And so if you say with your mouth, I believe in Jesus, that he is Lord, he is Savior, he is the King, that his word is true, and I need to follow him with all of my life, with all of my heart and soul and strength, and yet you don't, what are you really? You are an unbeliever. You are a child of Satan. You are a religious hypocrite, a pretender. And if you were to drive home today and get hit by some drunk driver or a meteorite were to fall out of the sky and crush your car, and you were to stand before Christ, would he say, oh, there's one of my faithful followers who loved me, loved my people, and used what I gave him to give me glory? Is that what he's going to say? Or is he going to say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Oh, you may be able to fool the world that you were a Christian, but you cannot fool Christ. He is the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire. And no, you can't get a lawyer. You can't hire any professional witnesses. Jesus knows everything already. And he's right. He doesn't need persuaded, he doesn't need any information brought to the table. He's got all the information about the true condition of your soul. And hell stands with its mouth gaping for you, ready to swallow you into the flames of black darkness forever. If you have not repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, believing 
with saving faith, not an intellectual agreement. Yeah, you know, I'm willing to say that. Don't think that some intellectual agreement or verbal acknowledgement of Jesus and who he is and what he did is, you know, kind of like paying the lifetime fire insurance policy. It's not. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Is that you? Is that you? If it's not, you're an unbeliever. You are an unbeliever. Satan would have you believe that being religious and wanting to go to heaven and calling yourself a Christian is enough. But God says, no, that is just a state of religious unbelief. And if you are sitting out there and you're thinking, you're, you're scaring me, I am so glad. You should be scared because God's wrath abides on all of those, all of them, who do not believe in him. It is like a huge lead weight that is just hanging there by a thread, ready to break loose and just crush you down into hell forever. You wonder why Jesus taught on hell so much. Here's the loving Savior warning, 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 flee from the wrath to come. It's because there's a lot of unbelievers. Now you might be sitting out there going, okay, Jack, I'm a little bit confused. I know I'm not the best, you know, faithful, you know, Christian, or maybe I'm not a Christian, but at least I'm here. It's Easter. I'm, I'm saying I believe, and doesn't the Bible say I don't need to believe? And the question is, okay, maybe I don't have true saving faith. Maybe I just have intellectual faith. Maybe I'm trusting in my good works or thinking that, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit better than I am bad, and it's going to wait, and don't even go there. Don't even go there. God wants nothing from you to participate in his salvation plan. He wants to save you and have you follow him. He doesn't want you to follow him so he saves you. And so the solution is our second point, be believing. You know, why did the prophets predict the Messiah's death? So you would believe. Why did Jesus predict his death? So you would believe. Why are these accounts in here of the angels telling the women, don't you remember? So that you would remember. Why did Jesus appear to Mary Magdalene, the other women, to Peter, disciples, to more than 500 of the brethren at one time? And they all saw him. Why did he do that? So you would believe. Believe what? Believe that Jesus is risen? Risen indeed. That up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. That he arose a victor from the dark domain and lives forever with the saints to reign he arose, he arose, hallelujah, he arose. That's why we're here this morning to celebrate that he is a risen Lord. Be unbelieving no longer. Acknowledge that you are a sinner. That you have violated the law of God. That you deserve to be judged and that there is only one escape and that escape is Jesus. And you need to believe that God loves you. Oh, he loves you. 
And right now, his love is extended to you, and he's saying, today is the day of salvation. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 5, 6 through 9. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having now been justified By his blood, we will be saved from the wrath of God through him. Think about it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to redeem us from sin. To rescue us from sin so that we'd walk in sin no longer. And if you look at your life and you realize, you know what? I am in bondage to sin. I am in bondage to my own carnal appetites. I am not in control of my life. I don't love God. I don't love God's people. I don't love God's word. I'm not serving. I'm not a member of this church or any other local church. Today is the day of salvation. Christ stands there. The doors of heaven are opened. And he says, come to me and I will give you rest. He says, believe on me and I will save you. I will change you. But you know what? If you're thinking, well, can I just get the insurance and still do my own thing? No. No. You come all or you don't come at all. Paul, when preaching to the unbelieving Greeks at Athens, said this to them. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man who he has appointed. Do you know who that man is? He goes on to say, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. When you come here and you celebrate Easter, you know what you're celebrating? That the judge is coming back to judge all those who will not believe and follow him. The door of heaven is open today. And today is the day of salvation. Christ will have you now. You don't need to bring any good works. They aren't good enough. You don't need to first get your act cleaned up so that he will accept you. He'll take you as you are Sinner that you are. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. While we were enemies. You don't need to think to yourself. Okay. Let me get uh, enough uh, of my sins committed. There's still some sins I'd like to try first. No. You need to realize that you may not make it. To the next sin. And if you're out there thinking. Well Jack. I, You know. I'll wait until I'm on my deathbed and then I'll sneak in under the wire and just give him everything. I'll give him all of my, you know, 30 seconds of life left. You don't even know when you're going to die. You don't know if you're going to be one of those people who dies suddenly of a brain aneurysm or a car accident. Most people aren't conscious when they die. You may be swept away. I just, the neighbor was telling me that uh, his, his brother just died suddenly of a heart attack. 
Another neighbor told me that, yeah, um, my mom, we were going to have her come home for hospice. She had cancer, and as soon as they found it, she just died the next day. That may be you. That may be you. And so you need to take the advice of the psalmist who says, do homage to the son that he might not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. And how blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Believe in Jesus. Believe in the resurrection. Give your life to him right now. And you will be saved. And for the rest of you, just remember, he is risen and all God's people say, is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this text and just being able to survey all the gospels at one time to get a very clear picture of what might have happened and the chronological sequence of events that led up to the resurrection and follow the resurrection of Christ. Follow if there's anybody here right now whose heart is troubled within them and they know they need to be saved, that they aren't living for you and they are battling within and Satan is telling them to wait, wait, wait. May they now come to you. May you grant them repentance. May you open their heart. May they give their life to you and be changed forevermore. May you put your spirit within them. Give them the hope of eternal life and help them know for certain that they are going to heaven. And give them that desire to follow you all the rest of their days with a whole heart and a willing mind. And for the rest of us, may we leave here today praising you that you are coming back in judgment, that you can raise us from the dead. For you have furnished proof, having first raised your own son from the dead. We praise you for that. In Christ's name, amen.